This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. I've stopped for a moment in my climb beside a babbling brook. It's coming straight down from the hill. It's obviously carrying the most recent rain shower which has hit the slopes of Ben Lors. I'm in the Perthshire Highlands and I'm looking down across the most magnificent stretch of water, about 14 or 15 miles long, that is Loch Tay. And all around us on the far side of the loch and up behind me there are these tall peaks. Some are shrouded in heavy grey cloud and it looks about the same behind me as well. And I'm here with Andrew Warwick who is a ranger with the National Trust for Scotland. So yes, it's part of Ben Lord's National Nature Reserve which is a highly designated bit of ground important for Arctic and Alpine flora which was the main reason for the purchase in 1950 by the Trust which is mostly between this head dike and the summits of the hill, so it's the south-facing ground on Loch Tay. Yeah. And it, it's a, a huge favourite of walkers, nature lovers, of botanists, of archaeologists. Yeah, that's right. It's very popular walker. So it's the 10th highest mountain in Britain, so we get 30 or 40,000 walkers up here a year. The real thing that it's important for is it has, you have to go back to the, the geology, which is very lime-rich, friable schist which enriches the soils with minerals, and that's the reason that the rare Arctic alpine plant assemblages are here. It's also the reason that we've got such high levels of human occupation over the millennia. So very special in many ways. And that botanical side of it, you know, I saw glimpses of it as I was struggling up the slope because we came across mosses, we came across sundew plants, there's bog cotton, you know, there's creeping grasses, there's, well, there's the thistles. Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> mosaic of different habitats. They're, they're very fragmented. Some of them are very large, some of them are very small. They all have differing requirements in terms of grazing. Some of them are, are destroyed by grazing and some of them need some grazing to be maintained. So that poses a very big challenge for a conservation organisation like ours to hit that balance but just look around and you think this is a wild landscape but actually what we're in is a landscape that has been managed by man and livestock for thousands of years that's what i'd love to explore for this week's open country it's a fascinating piece of human history that we are looking down upon and up to the very peak of ben lors Yes, we've got scattered remains from virtually every period of human occupation here, all over the hill, linked with the farming and agriculture of the land. So what we're looking at is really a very cultural landscape, not a wild landscape at all. Which is why we have stopped here, Andrew, because there are great clusters of boulders all around us, and some, yes, look, there's quite a high wall behind us here. This is the remnant of human occupation. What is this? Well, this is a shielding site, so these are all shielding huts, and the shielding is really an area of summer grazing that would have been connected to the farms lower down. It's a story of agricultural transhumance uh, as summer grazings, so the people would come up here mostly with cattle, a few sheep and goats, for the five grazing months of the year, and they would, they would live in these shieldings and make use of the summer grazing on the hill. You call it transhumance? 
that's about the movement of people from down there, closer to the, the shores of Loch Tay, up to this higher land, when it was right for them to come up to graze their livestock. Yes, and a system that existed for, for a very long time. And was it sheep that they were bringing up here? It was mostly cattle with some sheep and some goats. And was it a house that the humans lived in? I wouldn't call them houses. They're, they're huts. They're, most of them are no bigger than an average tent these days. But it had uh, a roof. And probably less comfortable. Yeah, yeah, they would have had uh, small crook frames and roofs, quite often thatched or turf roofs. Mm -hmm. And you can see how they built them because they took the stone from the very landscape to make the walls. Some are still standing over there and behind us. So I can see how they did that. The big problem was that the population in this area had grown by the 1770s, there was a great concern about the number of people living around the loch and the pressures that that was putting on, on the shielding pastures. So they were moved off? They weren't forced evictions, as you would have in the Highland Clearances in, say, Sutherland. There was problems with overstocking and took their toll on the vegetation and more and more of it was converted into the, the grasslands that we see today. Andrew Warwick, Ranger with the National Trust for Scotland. Thank you for describing these shielings. We'll come back to you later on up here on the slopes of Ben Lors. But for now, I'm going to drop down to the loch side for a modern gathering at Kenmore on the head of Loch Tay. I've come down onto this open sports field which is surrounded by trees and there are hundreds of spectators all the way around this arena and then you have this sort of race circuit and then you look past the, the stage where the Highland dancing is performed and at the other end where the pipers will play and then in the very middle you've got the heavyweights that toss the cabers and throw the hammers and this is the 2017 Kenmore Highland Games held on the edge of Loch Tay. There's a race underway and for the secretary of the Games, Sarah Kelly, oh, it must be such a relief for you that they've kicked Absolutely. everything off now. It is a relief. It's a year-long project, actually. We just, as soon as this Games is over, we'll start for the next one. So I've been working on it since this time last year. And it's an amazing little Games. It's the only evening Games in Scotland. It started 45 years ago as a Highland Games. Before that, it was just a sports night for the local workers at the local farm. And the last three years, it's been an incredible amount of people attending, a lot of trade stands, and a lot of really good or heavy competitors come from all over Scotland, and we're very fortunate to have some of the best heavy eventers here. So there's local and international, but I know, yes. Sarah, you are local, because not only are you the secretary, you are the district nurse. <laughs> You yes. probably know a lot of folk I here. Pro I probably do. I came here 32 years ago from Northern Ireland and I thought I might stay for a year and here I am 32 years later. So yes, I've worked in this area for all those years. Wonderful place to be. But are these games still about locals the way it started or, or not? Not, not so much now. It's just become part of the Scottish Games Association's events that go through the summer. So it really is an athletic event. How important do you think it is for people living here now, though? I think it's really important for people to have this on their doorstep. Our communities have really changed over the years particularly here it's a big holiday place now so it's not got the same little village feel that it might have had 
20 years ago. We do get some local support and it's a Games that's known throughout Scotland because of the famous Scottish midge. It always visits these games, always. When it gets to about 8 o'clock at night, everybody's running for cover. So it's really, really important because it does bring people together. It brings visitors, it brings the locals together. It's just fabulous to show off this event to people. I've come to the opposite shore of Loch Tay and I've been drawn here because we can get an understanding of how the human occupation of this landscape actually, it dates back millennia. This is the Scottish Cranog Centre and a Cranog, which is familiar in Scotland and, and Ireland, is where people constructed dwellings actually out on the water. And what's very special about the Scottish Cranog Centre is that they have reconstructed one here. And I believe that it's 20 years since you built this reconstruction. 20 yes. years since it's opened to the public. And I'm with Barry Andrian and her husband, Dr Nick Dixon. And we are going to walk out into the loch across this magnificent wooden gangplank built of logs that you just feel have been hewn from the forests at the side of the loch. <laughs> they and, were. And they, <laughs> were. <laughs> they were. Yeah. But don't we get such a wonderful view of the run of the loch from here? To the west and to the east we have the mouth of the River Tay, which is one of the longest rivers in Scotland. Killin, 14 yes. miles away. Yeah. Beautiful stretch of water. And as soon as you step out, you just feel the change in atmosphere because the breeze picks up over the water. At the end of the, the gangplank, there is this large round house with this enormous thatched roof. It sits like a, you know, an upside-down cone. It's huge. And probably one of the most extraordinary things, as if one has never seen a cranog, is that it's on stilts, hand-piled, hand-driven into the lock bed. So no cranes, no modern devices. So, and this was very much an experimental build when we first started, and it was built between 94 and 96. So we had to learn how to do that. So it was a real exercise in rediscovering ancient technology. Here we can see the sites of four other Cranogs just within view of here, where we are. And it's very easy to be misled. That does look like an island, but it was actually constructed. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about. Yes, many of the islands you see, uh, there are 30,000 lochs in Scotland, and in many of them there are beautiful little islands, and lots of those islands were artificially constructed. And you did it because of the expertise that you have. You are both underwater archaeologists. You went down into what I presume are the very cold waters of Loch Tay. Pretty chilly. <laughs> Understatement. Chilly. It is, and we tried to make this as authentic as we could based on archaeological evidence. Come on, let's sit in this crannock. As we come in and we settle on one of these um, hide-lined benches around the fire, you look up and you get a real sense of the scale of this building. It is treetop tall, isn't it? A great conifer height of tree. All the thatching, you can see the intricate work that goes to make up the roof. And then it comes down very low to the edges of the hurdle walls that have been created. It's predominantly tawny brown, isn't it? Because that's the colour of dried wood, of the dried corn hanging from the roof as if to dry. The colouring of the floor with its organic material of grass and bracken and, and there's fleece in there. I can feel my feet warming up. <laughs> but I wonder, why did people build structures like this out on the water? Well, there are two main reasons, we think. One of them is obviously just for protection. 
you're living at a time when there's no police, there's no army to protect you. You're living in a rural area, growing good crops. You have cattle, sheep and pigs, so you have wealth. And people might want to come and steal your wealth, but you have a protected settlement that people can't get out to. So that's, I think, one of the main reasons. The second one is it's what we call a symbol of power. If you look at the site, you can see it from 10 miles away. Nobody's hiding. They're saying, this is our place. We are the people here. Mm. And it's a symbol of power. So the family who lived here would be powerful people in the landscape. So it's part of a very long story of human occupation here. We were up in the Sheelands earlier on, which had to do with the agriculture. They were in defensive mode, possibly. They were absolutely in defensive mode. And it's very interesting that we've now had... 13 of the Kranags in the loch, there are 18 here altogether, and 13, and they're all radiocarbon dated to two and a half thousand years ago. Some at some point, they started building Kranags in the very early Iron Age. And I think one of the reasons for this is that about 500 years before that, the climate in Scotland had begun to deteriorate. So the Bronze Age people, and there's good evidence for them around the tops of the hills and everything, the Bronze Age people saw deteriorating climate and by 500 BC, the beginning of the Iron Age, it was pretty well the not very nice climate that we have today. Much wetter, much colder. And so people had to move down towards lower land and around the edges of the lochs. There's good agricultural land, so the people moved there. And they began a different period. It's different climate, different ideas and so on. As we are sitting here, the house martins are swooping in and out through the doorway and then they've got nests high above our heads in the thatching. Look, I I think I can even hear the chicks in the nest. Look, they're coming in to feed. Definitely the chicks, that. This is not just the Scottish Cranach Centre. You are also the Scottish Underwater Archaeology Trust and... You intend, in the next while, to once again descend down into the deep, cold waters of Loch to discover more of the story that lies behind these crannets. Yes, but we're not really going 600 feet deep, Loch We'll be going down 10 to 15 feet, and in that area is all the exciting things that we find. It's the cold, pity, dark waters of the Loch. It's basically anaerobic, no bugs, so it doesn't break down the organic materials that on land would be destroyed very, very quickly. For example, we have a wooden butter dish with the remains of the butter still in it after two and a half thousand years. So the That's level the preservation, preservation that you get. fantastic. And in one case, we found a handful of cherries still with the flesh of the cherries still on the cherries, yes. It's kind of like a tomb, and the preservation is there because it's sealed and it hasn't been exposed for such a very long time. So actually, the archaeologists, when we uncover it, we're actually revealing it and exposing it to oxygen and therefore potentially destroying it, but capturing all that evidence and information at the same time. When you get kitted up to go in the water, that's fairly dramatic anyway. We have to wear dry suits. And when you submerge your head under the water, it's a different world. It may be raining, it may be sunny, you can see the mountains all around, and the minute your mask goes under the water, everything becomes more restricted. The colour of the water is a bit like diving in whiskey. If it's been calm and not too windy, you can see a long way under the water. So you can see maybe 10 metres, maybe more. And everything's magnified, of course, because as you go underwater, refraction makes everything bigger. And it may be chilly, but you very soon forget that. In this other world, you can't speak to people. 
you can't really hear people. You just hear your air bubbles going up to the surface. And it's a really magical place. And when the sun comes out, if it's a cloudy day, which quite often in Scotland it is, but if the sun comes out, it's like somebody's turned a light on. It really is. And you're excavating, and all the colours of the material you're excavating suddenly brought out by the sunshine. And you find an object, you cannot help but think, who was the last person to see this before me? So two and a half thousand years later, I'm seeing something that somebody lost or laid down and was abandoned in the house. And occasionally you'll lift a stone and under the stone you sometimes find twigs with leaves on and in some occasions they're still green. And as you watch them, they turn yellow. It's as if they've been waiting for autumn for all these years and suddenly they turn yellow while you're actually watching them. So it's amazing. Nick Dixon... Barry Andrian, thank you so much for the insight you have given us into the human presence in this watery landscape all those thousands of years ago. It's really, really special. Great pleasure. So we've heard of Cranags now and Sheelands, but there are other forms of evidence of human habitation which stretch even further back, which is why... Andrew Warwick, the ranger with the National Trust for Scotland, and I have come back up onto the slopes of Ben Lors. And there's been a lot of surveying for these more ancient signs, haven't there, Andrew? Yes, as part of the Ben Lors Historic Landscape Project, there was a a lot of excavations based on the Royal Commission's survey. Although it was focusing around the period of agricultural change that we've been talking about, it also delved into the more distant past and prehistory excavating a number of Iron Age sites. There was one that we came up past earlier on, which was inhabited at the same time as the, the Cranog in the Loch. Earlier sites up here into the Bronze Age. And there is no better way of exploring those more distant human contacts in this landscape than with archaeologist Aaron Watson. And we have come to a place with you and Aaron because you are going to show me, Aaron... Yeah, um, let's go and have a look at this rock over here. We can see lots of stones around us on these hills. Some of them have been altered by people in the very distant past, in the Stone Age. They've been carved. Designs, images have been incised into their surfaces using stone tools in a very particular way. And how far back are we talking Stone Age? Roughly between four and 5,000 years ago that they were being made in this landscape. And you've brought us to one particular rock. It's flat-topped. What are we looking at, Aaron? What can you see? N- not a lot. Small, about slightly bigger than a 50 pence, and a beautifully even-sided dip in the rock. There's another one. This rock has a secret, oh. which can be revealed with water. And what we need to do is, because this makes the surface more reflective is move around so that we're catching the light. I'm at sort of chin level with it. And now, Aaron, I can see that dimple there, and there's like a a ridge around it. And that wouldn't have been evident if you hadn't put the water on it. Not now, because it's so weathered over the millennia. Why are they in this boulder? What, What do they represent? Well, that's the interesting question, isn't it? And for something that's so abstract, that is a problem because if these were images that appeared to depict people or animals, we might have a much better guess at what they might have meant to people. In fact, there are over a 100 different interpretations of what they might have meant. (laughs) 
And they go from everything from maps to star charts. You know, they could be the constellations. And other people just say that maybe they're just aimless. That's just people sitting here and doodling on the rock surface. I personally think that the reason for their existence is rather more profound than that. The choice of rocks is very significant. And in part, that's why we were interested to excavate some of these rocks. If we look at where we are now in this landscape, there are some quite significant features within it. Down beneath us is the shining surface of Loch Tay. That's one landmark which I think is significant. The other, which is above us and partly shrouded in mist and cloud, are the high peaks of the Ben Laws range. And I think in part it's the visibility of these two elements that in some cases helps to determine the rocks which are chosen for this kind of marking. How did they make these dimples, as it were, in, in the rock face? When we have dug excavation trenches around cup and ring marked rocks, we find hundreds, in some cases thousands, of fragments of broken stone. What kind of stone? It's, on the whole, in this area, quartz. When you break through this surface of the rock, you get this silvery sheen and dust and glitter emerging. It's caught in the sun. It covers anyone who goes near it. And that sparkle, that shimmer, it must have looked almost magical. I think that's right. One of the elements is the glitter, the shimmer. The other is the quartz dust, the sound. Look at this rock, look at how it's placed. You could imagine a group of people standing around, rather like an audience in relation to a stage. When you were excavating, you found all these fragments of quartz. So what is it about quartz that makes it so significant in these cup and ring formations? Quartz does have an extraordinary property. It has an optical ability to produce light. When it's knocked against another piece of quartz or abrased in dim light, you will see arcs of light within the crystal. Now, even today, when we understand this as a phenomenon known as triboluminescence, it still doesn't take away from its very special qualities. And if we think that the people making these marks, they wouldn't have been using words like triboluminescence. Well, what would it have meant to them? If it's special now, if it, if it looks really good now, what does that say about making these marks? Maybe if people are gathered around watching a piece of theatre in a particular place in the landscape where the shimmering, shining surface of the loch below is even resembling the silvery dust that's emerging from the rocks as they're carved. It looks a little bit like the quartz crystal itself with its shiny crystalline surface. I think that that's where the choice of rock is significant because certainly on Ben Laws, and it, it doesn't work everywhere, but on Ben Laws, it's almost as if some of the most complex carvings are poised between Loch Tay below, which on a less windy day than today, has amazing reflections of the other shore that appear upon its surface. 
So you're looking down at an inverted image of the world. And also because the loch is to the south, that means that the sun and the moon are moving across that part of the sky and are also reflecting their light in the shimmering surface of the loch. And we can maybe see how a piece of quartz held in the hand can suddenly assume a significance about people's place in the wider landscape and maybe in the wider cosmos. Aaron Watson, archaeologist, and Andrew Warwick of the National Trust for Scotland, thank you both very much. So I've seen the cup and rings, I've been to the Cranach Centre, I've heard stories of human habitation in this landscape since the earliest of days and I find myself now back down on the edge of Loch Tay at Kenmore amidst these Highland Games, just mingling in with the hundreds of spectators who are enjoying the dancing and they're watching the great heavy games in the very centre, there's a caber about to be tossed and there's another man... Oh, I just love the way they swing that hammer and it sails through the air and then thuds to the ground. I'm just going to hang around and enjoy it all.